0: morning everybody. What a glorious day we've been given and blessed with. Um, Let's just open up in a word of prayer. Father in heaven Lord we just come to glorify your name and present our bodies as a living sacrifice for your service. And we just ask that your spirit be allowed to move in us today and we release this now in Jesus name. Amen. With today's devotion, how many here have done any kind of gardening? And what do you got to do to the soil? You got to kind of cultivate it, till it up, so that it can be prepared for the seed or whatever. Because if it falls on hard ground, not much can happen. Well, yesterday, (laughs) um, I was up trimming the... The tree out there that's rubbing up against our tile roof, and these bees did not, or wasp did not like me up there. So I was about three or four foot off the off the ground, and I decided to leap backwards, <laughs> hit the ground, and was stung a couple different times. But just kind of to show you that it was really hard ground, and there's not much you can do about it.
1: Bonnie
0: doesn't fly. And Bonnie doesn't fly well. She I got stung twice. Kathy got stung once, I believe, and uh, I'm just grateful that there was no broken legs. Um, some sincere devotion, and you can see kind of, hopefully you see where I'm going with this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, and joy, gentleness, and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. We should seek to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, Or to put it more accurately, we should allow the Holy Spirit to produce his fruits in our lives. You say, I am powerless to produce such fruit. You don't know how weak and how self-centered I am. It would be utterly impossible for me to do so. With that, I agree with that. That is, we can't produce the fruit in our own strength. When the Spirit of God dwells within us and has control of our lives, he will produce that fruit. Our responsibility is to cultivate the soil of our hearts through the sincere devotion and surrender so that he might find favorable ground to produce his fruit. I might have a fruit tree in my yard, but if the soil isn't enriched or the bugs carefully come along and destroy it, it will not yield a full crop. What keeps the Holy Spirit from producing his fruit in your life? The hope for today, it's tempting to say, I'm just not patient or a gentle person. On our own, none of us would consistently exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. It's God's fruit, and he will produce it if our hearts are yielded to him. So with that, let's uh, worship our Lord.
2: today's Old Testament reading is from 1st Kings 19 verses 1 through 15a Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had slain all the prophets with the sword then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow Then he was afraid, and he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree, And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and beheld, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. Else the journey will be too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged there and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains. And broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. Yeah. Please join me now in the Lord's prayer and our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our as we forgive our death. and lead us not into temptation deliver us from evil amen in the glory and the glory forever. Amen. Chop.
1: <laughs> I'm gone.
3: New Testament reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verses 23 through 29. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under the guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. For you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. That's pretty uplifting, huh? Join me in responsive reading. Beckoning God as you moved in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Move in our lives, inviting us to journey to unknown territory, to listen for your voice, to speak your prophetic word in a world that does not want to hear empowered by your spirit grant us the courage we need to journey trust listen speak and accept your commission to be your faithful servant amen let us pray heavenly father you created all you really own all and you you entrust some You entrust things back to each one of us as you believe we can handle it. And Lord, you call for us to give back. You call for us to share, share the things that we have with others in a spirit such that they, whoever receives and is blessed by them can feel that it really comes from you. So Lord, we ask that the gifts that we give today may be used wisely and used to further your kingdom and spread your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd like to rise and join me in the doxology.
4: Well, as we, uh, you know, we, we offer our praises to God and we worship Him and we glorify Him, and then this is the time when we come to God's Word and we say, God, speak to us now. Uh, so it's always a two-way dialogue going on between us and the Lord, uh, you know, our praise to Him and then Him speaking to us. Um, <clears throat> our text this morning is Revelation chapter 2, uh, beginning verse 18. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not Im- impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over, over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like poverty, poverty, like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So this is a good A good reminder uh, this morning, Um, we live in an age of a lot of uh, mushy theology, which, you know, it kind of uh, uh, mushy, that's the best word I can come up with, and a a real lack of spiritual discipline, and so we're soft on righteousness and holiness, and so we want to look at God's word, uh, because that's what was going on in Thyatira, there was some mushy theology going on. Um, they had listened to false teaching, and some had gone astray. Not all of them, but some of them had gone astray. But to start with, let's talk about the city of Thyatira. Thyatira was in a valley connected, to, connected with uh, connecting two rivers, the Caicus and the Hermus. And during the days when Pergamum was the capital, it was on a main transportation route from Pergamum in the sea to the southeast and to the central Anatolian plateau. So... Uh, you can see up there, and it's this is, um, this is a map, and it's modern day Akhisar. And you see it up there where, where it says Manisa, uh, and then you go up a little bit right, that's Akhisar, and that's the modern city of um, what was then Thyatira. And Thyatira was a garrison city, and it was in this valley, and there was always, um, yeah, hit the next one. Okay. Yeah. This is some of the ruins of the old city of Thyatira. And it was a garrison city, and it served between it was between two empires, the Pergamene Empire and that Lysimachus Empire. And so there, there was two some two empires. And next slide, I think we'll show it. Um, And so you can see, here's a valley, and and Thyatira was right in the middle of these two kingdoms. And it had no natural defenses. That was the problem. Um, it didn't have any high hills to go on. Nothing, you know, nothing, no, no kind of natural defenses like we find, for instance, in Pergamum, which was way up on a on a citadel. Thyatira was a sitting duck, so to speak. And but it was, and it was the gateway to a very rich kingdom in Pergamum that we talked about last week. So it was often subject to attack. These two. Kingdoms would, you know, when they wanted to attack each other, they would attack each other through that valley uh, where Thyatira sat. And God called Paul in his second missionary journey to go to Macedonia, and he ends up in Philippi, okay? Now that's way over in present day Greece, and it says this in Acts chapter 16 On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. So this woman Lydia had gone all the way from uh, Thyatira, which is on present day Asian side, over to uh, what is today Greece, um, <coughs> to Philippi. Um, you know, it says he, she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Excuse me, got two, one too many pages there. Okay, um, and so Thyatira was noted for its trade guilds. And just like with Lydia, Lydia was a dealt in dying, you know, um, D-Y-E, not D-I-E, but but uh, she was she was a dealer in, Dying cloth. And so a lot, that was a lot of what was going on in Thyatira. Inscriptions mentioned wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, and bronze smith. And so Thyatira was known as a place with a lot of trade guilds. Now we have those today, you know, where where those who are in a particular line of work will all get together and and, and meet together. But it was even more of a social club back then. Very much they hung together socially. And also they would worship pagan deities together. And they, um, they worshipped the god Tyremos. And he would be conceived as a patron of the guilds and therefore honored in their festivities. So it was, it was kind of a social, social clubs combined with pagan worship. And the region of Thyatira and Sardis was known for its dyeing process. The red dye was processed from the madder root and they called it the Turkey red. And it's still used in modern day Akisar in Turkey. And when we were in Turkey, <coughs> we were in Bursa, which is um, not too awful far from there, maybe what, 100 miles or something like that from there. And there was in the city of Bursa, um, there was a lot of textiles in the city of Bursa and Bursa was the, was the first capital of the Ottoman Empire and there was a stream that ran through, right down the in, uh, through Main Street and there was a, uh, a bridge over the stream and you could always tell what color they were dying that day because one day the water would be red and then the next day it'd be green and the next day it'd be yellow, black and you know So he could always, and the water was always some kind of different color. Uh, So the modern city, as I've said, is is known as Akhisar. Today it's about 160,000 people. And as you saw there, the ruins are not, it's one of the the least of the ruins in terms of uh, the seven cities. Well, they're given a commendation. In uh, verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira right? <clears throat> these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, so that's an incredible description of Jesus. And it goes back to Revelation 1.14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing water. So, you know, um, so Jesus is revealing himself in this way as uh, he's the son of God. And that's the first time in the book of Revelation that we see uh, Jesus referring to himself in, as the son of God in the book of Revelation. We see it in other places, but not, but not there. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like burnished bronze. And Thyatira is commended. As all of these, there's a commendation first. Um, Verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Now that doesn't, you know, sound like so much, but when you compare compare it to what the admonition that's given to Ephesus, um, it says they, they had good deeds and they had love and faith. Remember in Ephesus that the problem in Ephesus was that they had lost their first love. They were doing the right kinds of things in Ephesus, but for the wrong kinds of reasons, not out of love. And furthermore, it says their service and perseverance, and that they were doing more than they did at first. In Ephesus, the, the angel to the, or Jesus speaks to the angel of the church in Ephesus, And says, do the things that you did at first. So they weren't doing the things they did at first. But in Thyatira, they're not only doing them, but they're doing better. So lots of things to commend them for. And he says, hold on to what you have. So they had some very good things. So the church at Thyatira looked really good on the outside. They were doing the right kinds of things. They were doing the things for the right reasons. A lot of good things to commend them for. They had increased in good deeds, motivated by love and faith. But they still had an underlying problem. So it was not so much what they were doing, but more of what they were not doing. Okay? So they were doing the right kinds of things, but there were things that they were not doing. Like holiness and things like that. And the problem is that Jezebel was accepted as a leader, prophetess, and teacher in the church. So that was the problem. They had accepted this woman as a prophetess. And it's every even good reason to suspect that the Nicolaitans, remember we talked about them the last week, were among those who were full of good works. Okay? So the big problem then in, in Thyatira was this woman Jezebel. <coughs> Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now <coughs> We don't know whether she was actually named Jezebel or not. Probably not, but we, we don't know. It might have been used metaphorically for an evil woman. Um, and it goes on. Who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Um, and But Christ identifies her as Jezebel. As, again, whether she was actually... Jezebel or not, we don't know. But he was implying that she was wicked and immoral like Jezebel in the Old Testament. Okay, so let's look at who this Jezebel is in the Old Testament. Kind of interesting that our our Old Testament reading today uh, was talking about Elijah and Jezebel uh, right right out of this text um, that we'll be looking at. And in 930 B.C., okay, there was a united monarchy. Okay, this is the united monarchy in, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, this is after the united monarchy is, is, uh, is divided, okay? But at one point, this was all together, the kingdom of Israel, and then in 930 BC, there's a division between Israel and the north. Ten tribes went to Israel, and two tribes, Judah and, and Benjamin, formed what was called the southern kingdom of Judah. And in 720 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Neo-Assyrians, okay? And the northern kingdom never had any good kings, all right? It was a succession of of evil kings. And the worst of those was Ahab, who we're going to talk about in a moment. The southern kingdom fell in 586 B.C., uh, fell to Babylon. But there were some good and some bad kings in Babylon, I mean, I'm sorry, in uh, the southern kingdom. So there was this woman named Jezebel. She was the daughter of Ethbael, king of Sidon. Sidon is on the coast. I don't know if it's uh, you can see it here. Yes, up at the, up at the top, uh, Sidon and Tyre. And, um, and so she, she was the first of the unions they, what they would do, if they want to unite two kingdoms and, and, uh, and establish friendship, they, they would have a daughter marry the king or, or vice versa, the king someplace, you know. But there would be a marriage, and that's what had happened. But the problem was that Ahab had married Jezebel, who was a pagan, uh, the daughter of a pagan king. And she was a pagan as well. And so she married King Ahab to seal a profitable trade alliance between Israel and Phoenicia. And Phoenicia was quite a trading area because it's on the coast. Ahab reigned from 874 to 853 B.C., okay? But he, and he reigned in the northern kingdom. So remember, there's no good kings in the northern kingdom. He was the worst of the worst kings in the northern kingdom. That's a pretty bad commendation. <laughs> you know, you're the worst of the worst. And Jezebel and Ad, and Ahab, that was the low point in the history of Israel. I mean, it was really awful. <clears throat> and so she was the representative of all that is designing, crafty, malicious, revengeful, and cruel. And she was a pagan worshiper, worshipped pagan, pag, uh, pagan gods. Guided by no principle, restrained by no fear of either God or man, Passionate in her attachment to her heathen worship, she spared no pains to maintain idolatry around her in all its splendor. She supported 450 prophets of Baal. And we're going to talk about a particular scene, a particular event that happened. But before this, remember, Elijah confronted the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you remember that story and... and, um, we're not going to go into that story, but that's, that's what had happened. And 400 prophets of Ashtoreth, and, and those 850 prophets were supported by Jezebel. So she was, uh, she was one, awful, one awful queen. First Kings, so we're going to look at one particular story to kind of illustrate the depravity of this woman Jezebel. First Kings 21. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. That's a nice thing, you know, hey, you know, I need some more room. Do you mind giving me your, uh, you know, not giving, but I'll, because he says, let me have your vineyard for a vegetable garden. In exchange, I'll give you a better vineyard. Or if you prefer... I'll pay you whatever it's worth. So he wasn't just going to steal it. He was just going to, you know, kind of force the hand. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Now, so you have to understand that in Israel then, the land was given to a family permanently. And they were not supposed to sell. I mean, And if they did sell that land, it would revert back to that family uh, in the year of Jubilee. So the land permanently belonged to those to whom it was apportioned." Well, Ahab wanted that vineyard. And so she goes home, he goes home, and he's sulking. That's what the word actually is. He is sulking. He's, he's having a hard time because he wanted it, and Naboth said no. So verse 8, so Jezebel, it says, wrote letters in Ahab's name, placing his seal on them, and send them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting. Oh, this is a religious kind of thing. And seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him, and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out and stone him to death. So, you know, Naboth wouldn't give you his vineyard, so we're going to kill not only him, But his whole family, his whole progeny, his whole, you know, the whole family and extended family, let's stone them all to death. That's the kind of woman that Jezebel was. So she found false witnesses, condemned him, and had them execute him. And so after that then, Ahab seizes the vineyard. 1 Kings 21-25. It kind of sums the whole thing up. It says this. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Listen to this: urged on by Jezebel, his wife. So behind the whole thing is this: is this woman Jezebel who had urged him on to do evil? He behaved in to Ahab. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Well, it, and eventually. Um, Jezebel is thrown out from, from a window. I think I've got the next slide. I think I've, um, and I, took that picture myself. Um, she, was, she was thrown out of the window to the ground, and the horses trampled her body, and the dogs ate her flesh. Okay, so kind of an ignoble end for a queen. Well, so Jezebel then, this woman in tire. so we're skipping ahead now a whole bunch of years, And this woman Jezebel had risen within the ranks of the church in Thyatira, and that was the problem. And the letter says she called herself a prophetess. So she was obviously a false prophetess. And I'm going to read verse 20 again. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants in the sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So there were three problems with Jezebel. First of all is that there's obviously a wickedness there. And she had a problem with authority. It says she called herself a prophetess. She had taken a position of leadership in the church and kind of just like Jezebel had just seized it. And then second, she's advocating uh, uh, practices which were clearly forbidden both by Mosaic law and by the early church, the Jerusalem Council, Exodus 20, verse 3. Um, This is where, you know, it talks about, um, this is the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and then verse fourteen: You shall not commit adultery. So, this Jezebel in Thyatira is doing is violating the Ten Commandments, and it, it's she was also violating the Jerusalem Council. Okay, now if you remember, the Jerusalem Council, Paul and Silas and, and uh, Barnabas were out proselytizing and making converts among the Gentiles. And there arose a problem about, you know, what, what were Gentiles, what, did they, what were they commanded to do and what were they not commanded to do? What, you know, what was the freedom? Could they, did they have to become Jews in order to become uh, Christians? All right? And the, the Judaizers said, no, you have to, you have to follow all the rules of the, of the Mosaic law and then you can be a Christian. And so they took that whole thing to the elders in Jerusalem, and then they uh, printed this. They actually wrote this and sent it out to the different churches in the, uh, in the Gentile word. And in Acts 15, 28, says, says this. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. <coughs> You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Okay, so that's part of that letter. So she was violating that because two of the things are not eating food sacrificed to idols and not committing sexual immorality. And so, uh, you know, she's directly violating both Mosaic Law and the, what the early church had established. So the second thing is that she led people in the congregation to sexual immorality. And as I talked about, um, in Thyatira were a lot of these guilds where they would get together. And in those guilds, they would have central parties and they would worship pagan idols and uh, maybe, uh, maybe Baal, we don't know who it was exactly. But then they would commit sexual immorality and they would lead to wild kind of uh, orgy sorts of... Uh, of things and Jezebel was one of those promoting this kind of lifestyle. The word committing sexual immorality can also mean commit fornication or live without sexual restraint. So she was teaching people in the congregation to live without sexual restraint. Furthermore, that she was teaching them to eat the food sacrificed to idols. So part of this celebration of these guilds was that they would would, uh, offer this meat to idols and then they would use that and, you know, have a cookout, so to speak, and they would eat this meat that had been sacrificed to idols as part of their celebration in these guilds. Uh, One commentator said this. He said, it is not difficult to show how important in practical life was this question as to the right of Christians to be members of social clubs. The clubs were one of the most deep-rooted customs of Greco-Roman society. Some were social, some political, some for mutual benefit, but all took a religious form. New religions usually spread by means of such clubs. The clubs bound their members closely together in virtue of the common sacrificial meal, a scene of enjoyment followed by a religious ceremony. So these guilds then um, practiced this kind of religious ceremony, paganism. It says they represented in its strongest form that pagan spirit in society. And they were strongest among the middle classes in the great cities. Persons who possessed at least some fair amount of money and made some pretension to education, breeding, and knowledge of the world to hold aloof from these clubs was to set oneself down as a mean-spirited, grudging, ill-conditioned person, hostile to existing society, devoid of generous impulse and kindly neighborly feeling, an enemy of mankind. Okay, So the reason I read that is this, that we as Christians are, are increasingly um, seen in that way that we be, you know, as we worship Christ, increasingly we are being seen as kind of antisocial. We gather together in our little, our little guilds, you know, our, our church, and, and increasingly our, the general American culture is seeing us as um, that kind of person, Okay there's an increasingly a negative view of the church. Do do you agree with me on that? Um, You know, increasingly, we as Christians are, you know, at at one point, I read an article on it this week. It was really interesting. It was talking about at one time, um, you know, and not too long ago, the church was seen in a good light in America. Um, I I can remember when I was growing up, and, you know, I was in Ashtabule, Ohio, and if you were, if you were, uh, if you wanted to, um, promote your business, you'd go and, and be part of a church because people said, well, Christians are honest and they're good people and so, you know, you go and you'd be part of a church and you would develop business relationships and so on and so on in, um, in the churches. And then gradually we became kind of neutral and now the mood is shifting, isn't it, toward Christians? That now we are being, that the church and Christians are being seen in a negative light in America. Now, I, we're used to that. In Turkey, that's, that, you know, that, that was the way it is, it's been ever since we've been involved in it. But here in America, we're talking about. So the question is, what does it mean to be in the world but not of the world? What does it mean that we as Christians live you know, as part of society and yet we're distinct from that? We are withdrawn from the society into the holiness of God. And how do we bridge that whole gap? What do we do with that whole thing going forward? And I'd like to just take one issue. Um, There's lots of issues that, you know, kind of revolve around that, but I want to take one issue that has been a big issue, and that is homosexual marriage, okay? Gay marriage. Um, And we have seen this. We have seen the mood and the the opinion of that changed drastically in probably the last 30, 40 years. Um, and not even that long, maybe, maybe 10, 15, 20 years. Um, the, the mood has shifted tremendously. And so I see a lot of similarities to the situation in Thyatira. Um, sexual immorality is part of the equation, okay? Whenever there is a, a whenever a culture and a people move away from God, it's usually towards sexual immorality. There's always some kind of sexual component to it. Secondly, there's a great social and even legal pressure to conform to the non-Christian world. We face a lot of pressure to conform to where our society is going. And even the government supports gay marriage, and of course we know that uh, gay marriage was legalized on June 26, 2015, Supreme Court decided that homosexual marriage was a constitutional right guaranteed by the 4th, 14th Amendment. So what do we do with all this as Christians? How do we do it? How do we interact in this culture? How do we be a part of the culture um, and in order to, in order to uh, love people to Christ and yet maintain our stance in terms of holiness to God? So that's, that's what I want to talk about. Well, the first thing is, we don't bend on our biblical position, okay? Um, we have the truth, and I, you know, Carolyn and I were talking about it, uh, actually on the way to church this morning, and we were just talking about how our culture, that the, the to me, the watershed event that happened in our culture was when um, there was a departure from absolute truth. That was, uh, you know, and that is because of an, a departure from God, from from believing that there is a God and that God holds us accountable. And then the second part of that is that absolute truth was abandoned. And so if absolute truth is abandoned, then everything is relative. And all ethics are relative. And so your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. And it doesn't matter because, uh, you know, so the highest virtue is, is intolerance. I mean, I'm, I, yeah. I'm sorry. The highest virtue is intolerance, and we are accused as Christians of being intolerant. Okay. So, but how do we deal with that? Well, first of all, yeah, as I said, we we um, we don't bend in our in our biblical position. I've learned that that the what the world is looking for from us is answers. They're looking at the church and saying, does the church believe anything? Do we have any kind of Things that we really still believe in. And they need to look at us and say, yes. In the church, they believe in truth. Genesis 2, 24. Um, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So right from the beginning, as we saw in our study of Genesis, Right from the beginning, God established marriage as the as the union of a man and a woman, and that's in that's you know that's in the uh, in the creation account itself. Leviticus eighteen twenty two: Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Leviticus twenty thirteen: If a man lies with a woman as one lies with a woman, I'm sorry. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman. I can't get my gender pronouns right here, so okay, nobody cares who. As they, as they lie with they, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. Their their blood will be on their own heads. So, so the penalty for what what today is homosexuality. We call it homosexuality. Um, is, is death, stoning to death. Genesis nineteen four, the in Sodom and Gomorrah, and the story is that angels, uh, God had heard how Sodom and Gomorrah were so wicked, that <clears throat> he sent two angels down to Sodom and Gomorrah, in order to see how wicked is are these cities, and they stopped, uh, talked to you know, met with Abraham beforehand, and then and then went down into Sodom and Gomorrah. And they, they go to Lot's house. Remember, Lot lived down in Sodom. And before they had gone to bed, okay, these are the two angels now, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Lot is, remember, is Abraham's nephew. <clears throat> Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Wow. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. Said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. So we see then, in fact, that's where the word sodomy comes from, is from, uh, from this particular story. And then Romans uh, 1, 24. And remember, Romans 1, it's this downward spiral of mankind and into greater and greater uh, immorality. And then verse 24 through 27. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women And were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. So we say that. In Scripture, it is really clear that this is a sin. First Corinthians 6 9, the following. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanders nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So so what we have is, (coughs) just like um, was happening in in the Roman society back in the days of Thyatira, where there was... um, you know, lots of immorality, eating of food, sacrificed to idols, lots of stuff that, it, that, it, that wanted to change the people in the churches. These were all you know, small home churches at that point. <laughs> but we have the same kinds of pressures today with people who are saying, we need to be like our culture. We need to act like them. We need to think like them, and so on. So the first thing we need to do is to say, is, is this, that we believe what we believe in. We know that God's word is the word of God. God, well, that's kind of a, what do you call it, tautology? Anyway, God's word is God. Now, anyway, God's word is God's word, okay? God's word is absolute truth. We believe in God and we believe in his word. And we don't, we don't back off from that one bit. Second thing is, we love the person but hate the sin. All right? So I think it's equally important that we, that we, that we take the stance that we love the homosexual. We, we love them. We love them as people. And I've had, the, I've had really the privilege in the course of my ministry, four different times, I've had, um, you know, times of counseling homosexual men and so on and, and develop friendships with homosexual men um, and have... have you know, some well, one of you know a couple of those. One one of them is not a Christian. Uh, the others were Christians. Uh, one of the fellows, a young men that we we had kind of adopted uh, a long time ago, um, ended up marrying another Christian man. Okay, and uh, and we have another man right right now that we've been we've befriended, and he's part of our family, and we really love him, and so on. Um, he's going to get married, he's, he's engaged to another guy, and they're going to get married. He's not a believer. But, um, but what I'm saying is this, that I had to learn to get, you know, I, I, in some ways it really grates on me. I don't, I don't like it, you know. It, it, it's unnatural to me, and I don't, I don't like it. But I've had to get by, past that and say I'm going to love them anyway. They're, I'm going I'm to befriend them, and they're going to be, you know, they're going to be. Uh, we're going to take them into our family, and and have them be part of, and and just just show them Christian love. So we affirm their personhood, but we don't take part in the sin. Um, you know, this uh, this one young man that we're we befriended, and um, we have decided we're. We're not going to go to the wedding. We're not going to take part in that. But we're going to love him anyway. He's still going to be part of our family. We're still going to bless him and so on. Okay. So then, you know, what do we do with all this? We're, we're, we're facing this. We're going to keep facing it. This is going to be a big issue. It already is a big issue. And it's, part of the reason that it's so important right now is that the law of the land is that this is right, and we as Christians say, uh uh-uh, we're not going there. Uh, we don't believe that this is right. This is against, this is against God's word, and we are going to keep bumping up against that in all kinds of different areas, because as our society departs from God, they turn toward all kinds of other uh, wrong thinking and wrong practices and so on. So... The last thing is that we maintain purity in the church. And that's what was going on in in Thyatira was that um, the angel, Jesus had written to the angel of the church in Thyatira and said, you've got to get rid of that woman Jezebel. You've got to have purity in the church. And we need to have the same kind of thing. In the church, we need to have purity. Now, the world out there, we're going to have lots of stuff going on out in the world, and we're going to bump up against that all the time. But in the church, we are to have purity. Revelation 2.21, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am... He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. James one twenty seven. religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, okay, social kinds of things, and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So, so we are called then, as Christians, I believe, to be, uh, to be a place of purity in the church. To judge in the church and to do what is right in the church and hold a standard that God wants in the church. Hold purity and holiness in the church. Now, and do the best we can, okay, to try to change change the culture, do the very best we can to try to speak sense to the culture. But, you know, we haven't had... I, See, I mean, it seems like a, a snowball rolling downhill right now, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like everything's just rolling downhill, and the natural trajectory is toward more immorality. And we've got to do the best we can to try to, to speak some sense into people in the world. But we also, what we can do is to have purity in the church. We can have purity in our own lives, in our own hearts, in our own lives, and purity in the church. So, we are going to struggle. I, you know, just like in Thyatira, there's, there's a lot of struggle that's going to go on. And we as Christians, we're facing increasing struggle, increasing headwinds. And, you know, we we need to be praying. We need to be praying for Doctrinal purity, we need to be praying for purity in the church and hold, hold to what we already know. So let's pray and ask God to, uh, to help us as a church to be the kind of church that Christ has called us to be. Father, we call out to you. And this world is going down, is, I, I can't believe how quickly that the sexual mores of our culture are descending into the pit. But Father, we call out to you and we pray that in the church we will have purity, that you will purify our church, that you will purify the church in America, the church in Tucson. Father, may you bring purity and holiness to the church. May we hold on to your word. May we hold on to to the things that we have been given, to absolute truth, to our belief in God. Father, may the church stand strong. And may this church stand strong, Lord. May we stand against the headwinds and stand for righteousness and holiness and purity in the church, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
3: May that river guide us in the right direction, that direction being your word. May we always look to it as the truth. May we always, when we're seeking and thinking, let us go back to what you have told us. Let us understand your word and follow your word always, as your Son has taught us to do. This we ask in his name. Amen.
4: And if we, can, uh, if we can just hold up the fathers in this congregation. Father, in Jesus' name, I lift up all the men who have, who have children in this congregation. We ask that you will bless them, Lord, that you will bless them on this particular day, Lord, the Father's Day. We thank you for the celebration of, of this institution that you have established, Lord. And you have established that, uh, that, that we would be men of God. And I'm praying for each man in this congregation who has children, Lord, that you will help them to stand, stand on your word, to bless their children, and and to walk in righteousness and integrity before you, Lord, so that our children will be blessed after us. And we pray that in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.
3: Go in peace.